Before we really get into the meat of today's program, I'd like to just address a couple things. Within pretty much the past week, the show has gone from a mutation of the Silicon Sasquatch podcast to having its own name and website and iTunes feed, all of that stuff. And it's not because I'm leaving Silicon Sasquatch. I'm still writing and producing there, but it's it's kind of a case of fledging, sort of letting the show find its own voice and identity, making it more of a focus. Related to this, you may have noticed the name change. Memory Card is a very evocative, apt name, and that's probably why two other gaming uh, publications were using it. It also had a really nasty habit of when searched online you'd find mostly camera accessories for sale, not really what we were going for. And if you consider the gaming landscape now, memory cards aren't even really a thing. None of the new consoles use anything like it. Game saves are saved to an internal hard drive or into the uh, nebulous cloud. Kids right now may never encounter a memory card unless they specifically seek out an older console. It's just not a fixture of gaming as a pursuit anymore. So I figured it was best to just peel off the band-aid, you know? Just get the name changed before it became really painful to uh, go about changing it. So, with all that said, welcome to Player Accounts. I'm Spencer Tordoff. In this episode, Arch Nemesis. My friend Susie Stewart is now an attorney in Seattle, and recently she sat down with me for an interview about just precisely how she ended up here. I don't remember the Commodore 64 coming into my life. Because the Commodore 64 came into my life probably about 1983 or 1984. And I was born in 80, so that meant I would have been a toddler at the time. The first thing I do actually remember is going to Kmart in Faribault, Minnesota, where I grew up, and um, buying a cartridge for Facemaker, which was a game that came out about that same time, 83, 84. I remember it distinctly because there are two purchases I made in 1984. Uh, it was Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go 45 single and Facemaker cartridge for Commodore 64. You know, there's very few early memories I have, and it's the Commodore 64 game I first bought and George Michael. <laughs> and I eventually grew out of Facemaker. You know, I turned five. <laughs> and I started playing... Summer Olympics, Winter Olympics, there are all these uh, pole position, you know, basically we had all these bootleg um, Atari games for the Commodore 64, and later the 128. So I was playing all of the Atari games on the Commodore, and I remember all those very distinctly. I would say the next thing I really remember was probably around 1988. That's where King's Quest IV came in, that was Perils of Rosella. You knew what you were supposed to do because everything was a story you'd already heard, with a twist, right? It was Sierra's, all their games have some element of humor. And I remember playing that with my pastor. My dad and my pastor, growing up, they were best friends. And they were both huge PC gamers. So Rick, uh, Rick Townsend Anderson, got me into PC gaming in a way that my dad really didn't. And from King's Quest IV, he then introduced me to Ultima 6, 
which was 1990. I was the youngest of two kids, three kids, excuse me. I was the only daughter. And um, by the time my parents got to me, they just were like, eh, whatever, she'll be fine. <laughs> I think my brothers wore them out and my mom took a look at me and she's like, you know what, she's going to do just fine. So they pretty much stuck me in front of the computer and I played like Leisure Suit Larry. I was playing like explicit games and they didn't affect me. Uh, but Ultima 6, I remember really standing out because when I was 10, you know, a preteen, really trying to figure out what my moral compass was in life, I was presented with Ultima. Lord British, uh, Richard Garriott, had really, over all of his games, put in a lot of effort in providing a moral compass for the Avatar. You were the Avatar. And there was eight virtues that the Avatar was, I mean, well, the Avatar of. Honesty, justice, compassion, sacrifice, valor, honor, spirituality, and humility. Every bit of those virtues, the Avatar had them nailed down. It was just a perfect hero. And when I was 10, I looked at these and I thought, those are some pretty awesome uh, compasses to live your life by. And I learned like lessons about all of those virtues through Ultima 6. It was an organic morality. And even though they sort of, uh, they give these names to them. Basically, when I look at these and I read them and remember them, I just basically remember it as being, this is how to be a good person. It wasn't forced. And, but and apparently in the Ultima world, I mean, people were not capable of it. Only this one person, there was a whole trial and test set up in Ultima 4 to find the one person, conveniently you, the player, who could pass all of these tests and be like the paragon of these virtues so but they're really I mean like if you're a good person in everyday life they're not I mean they're not hard they're very accessible from Ultima 6 I was hooked <laughs> unfortunately there wasn't that much time left for the Ultima series Ultima 7 came out and Ultima 7 part 2 and I mean if you've never played Ultima 7 and Ultima 7 part 2 I highly recommend you do um, they are often lauded as some of the best RPGs ever made, um, and I'm a little bit biased, but they consistently appear on lists of top games. They are really, really good games. Mm -hmm. Ultima 8 was sort of a departure. Uh, it wasn't as good as Ultima 7. Then uh, Lord British started developing Ultima 9, but left partway through Ultima 9 came out as a travesty. And then when I found out that Lord British pretty much was not really a part of the project. I I didn't I didn't finish playing it. To me it was not an Ultima game. Ultima historically came with um, immersive items. So you got a cloth map written in Britannic ruins, which were basically um, like Tolkien ruins, Celtic ruins, a modified alphabet. And all of the signs in all the Ultima games are written in these Britannic ruins. So if you got to a fork in the road, you clicked on the sign, you're like, where am I going? You had to read. You had to like actually get out the instruction manuals, find the runic alphabet, and um, translate it. 
And over a period of time, you just learn this runic alphabet. So, and I still remember the Britannic runes. I still write, like, I write in them all the time. When, when, when I, I want to make a note, but I don't want it to be found or, you know, like, read by other people. Maybe it's something private. I write it in these Britannic runes. I, I do. I did it the other day, laying in bed. I was making some notes, and I was just writing in Britannic runes. To me, playing Ultima just wasn't playing a video game. It was literally going into a different world and having adventures with my friends. Okay, well, all through this entire process, I never, I was a good kid. I was a good kid. Like, I never ran away from home. I never got in fights. I always had good grades. Like, I was an A student. I graduated with honors from both high school and my undergraduate. I never got in a fist fight. Like, I never laid hands on anyone. All my other girlfriends, even my girlfriends, like, would always talk about how they sort of got in a little bout of fisticuffs with some other girl, right? Like there was, kids Kids are always getting in fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be really low-level stuff or it might be a full-blown fist fight or, you know, biting or hair pulling. I never did any of that. Never threw a punch, never got a punch. So something, something was going right for me. So gaming became much more accessible, much more relevant, and less of a geek hobby. And, you know, it was really in the 2000s where gaming stopped being geeky and started just being another thing people did. People went to movies. People liked to read books. People liked to watch TV shows. People liked to play Call of Duty. You know, I mean, sure, some people liked to play Katamari Damacy. But there was a lot of Call of Duty. I mean, like, a lot of Halo, a lot of war games. Um, So now, even non-gamers became, well, I mean, got into gaming. So that stigma started to disappear. You know, I'd graduated from undergrad in 2002. And you get out of undergrad, and you're like, I've got a degree. I'm an adult now. I'm going to get a job. It's going to be great. This is life. Then you get a job and you realize life is pretty hard and it's not much fun and school's way cooler. Um, so I was working as a paralegal at a... was for foreclosures, bankruptcies, and then eventually um, debt collection. Yeah, some of the best areas of law to practice in. You really go home feeling good about yourself. And I knew I wanted to do something with my life. I graduated with a BA in anthropology, but I knew I didn't want to get a PhD in anthropology. I didn't want to be a professor. So I had to stop and think, well, what am I going to do when I grow up? Because I was 23, 24, working a job I hated, and I realized I still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I was dating a gentleman who's now one of my best friends, Steven. And we were living together and playing lots of video games. Oh my god, so many video games. Video games and kegs of Surly and potato olays from Taco John's. And we both got fat and it was amazing. But I knew there was more to life than that. It was in the 2000s. I don't remember the exact year. It was 2004, 2005, when 
Jack Thompson issued that challenge to game developers to develop a murder simulator. I have to interject here. If you're not familiar with Jack Thompson, we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail as to who he was. But if you look up his career on Wikipedia, you will find that he was very prolific. Anyway, back to the story. It was really weirdly racist, too. You were like an angry Chinese father. I can't remember. But you were an angry father, and you went to a developer's studio and murdered everyone there. That was, you know, if someone developed this game, he would give money to charity. And people did it because they wanted to get, they wanted Jack Thompson to give money to charity. And he reneged. He said nothing. It was a joke. Doesn't meet the qualifications. I'm not giving any money. That's when Mike and Jerry picked up where Jack Thompson refused to give to charity they gave in his name. Specifically Mike Krahulik and Jerry Holkins of Penny Arcade. And I remember staying there thinking in the mid-2000s, if this guy can be an attorney and affect the medium I love most, video games, and trying to convince parents that children will start just terrible violence because they've been exposed to video games. Well, I was, I was mad. So I thought if this guy can be an attorney, I could be an attorney too. And it was this whole thing. Law. I, I was watching attorneys work. I was watching attorneys make money. And I was watching attorneys be ridiculous like Jack Thompson. This is what I want to do. I want to be an attorney. This is it. This is what I was meant to do. I like to argue. I love to argue. I love minutia. It's great. I mean, I'm not, you know, attorneys are usually detail-oriented. I'm not the most detail-oriented person. But I will pick a point and I will hammer it into the ground. That is a skill I have. Being an attorney just seemed like a natural fit. And it was. It still is. I enjoy it. I love it. I declared Jack Thompson to be my arch nemesis. I decided to arch him. And I was not going to be happy until I was the anti-Jack Thompson. And I started applying to law schools. And I got accepted and I started in 2007. I wish going to law school and applying for law school was more glamorous. It's not. In 2006, I came out here for PAX 2006 when it was still in Bellevue at the Maiden Bower Center. And I had come home. I was home. It was small back then. It was crowded and it was home. And I was, I come from Minnesota. And we didn't have a gaming community in Minnesota. And I think a lot of places didn't have gaming communities. That's why you came to PAX, because it was a gaming community for you for that weekend. It was electric, and it was addictive, and it was amazing, and everyone there was, was there for the same reason, and I felt safe, and I never felt out of place, and everyone there was just as weird as me, and everyone there liked video games as much as me, probably more. It was an addiction that stuck. So I went to law school, I started law school in 2007 seven years ago, and um, I'd gone to PAX the year before, and I fell in love with the Seattle area, and I pretty much knew that I wanted to move to Seattle 
and practice law. I hadn't even started law school yet. Practice law in either the Bay Area or Seattle. And after having visited Seattle, I was like, well, I'm moving to Seattle. Especially once I realized there was such a good setup for gaming culture here. I knew I wanted to practice IP law, intellectual property law, in relation to entertainment, mainly video games. Um, but just technology in general. So I kept coming back for PAXs. And I've been to like seven of them now. Um... But for Penny Arcade, it's feud with Jack Thompson. I wouldn't have become. I wouldn't have gone to law school. And but for Pax, I don't think I would have fallen in love with Seattle and re- decided I wanted to move out here. Uh, I could have fallen into the trap of moving to the Bay Area. I went to law school. I moved out here. I studied for the bar exam. I took the bar exam in the main Bauer Center in the room where the where the original Expo Hall was for the old Paxes which was really, really weird, and became an attorney. And here I am. I mean, like, and now I'm practicing law, IP law, with a lot of tech startups and small indie game developing companies. And the, I guess the idea was eventually to be an attorney for 30 years and then someday lend my services for not much money to a group like the Electronic Frontier Foundation or the ECA um, and fight for... I mean, maybe it won't be video games then. I don't know what the new thing will be in 40 years. So I think it was in like 2009. I can't remember exactly. It was 2008 actually, which kind of came as a shock to me. But Jack Thompson got disbarred. It's not a surprise because the things he submitted to the court his pleadings were terrible. And I mean, they were full of unimportant information and they were huge. I mean, they were unnecessarily long and judges in Florida had had enough. And he got disbarred for practicing law terribly. I mean, it was not anything exciting like, you know, he got drunk and murdered someone. No, he just was really bad at being an attorney. And the judges had had enough of his craziness and disbarred him. Um, And it was about the same time, I think it was the next year, the Supreme Court also said, video games are legitimate expression of the First Amendment and therefore should benefit from the same protections as books and movies, etc. Is that close to the, the wording they used? I haven't read the opinion for years, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was basically like afford all the same protections to video games as other types of media that is already recognized as protected by the first amendment. It was sort of a dumb, uh, opinion that, that it had to be written, right? Because video games are clearly protected by the first amendment. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at them and you're like, well, this is all creative expression. This is all, this is all speech. This is all, I mean, like, There's nothing in here that is not protected by the First Amendment. My arch nemesis got himself disbarred. (laughs) Finished himself off. I I do not have an arch nemesis currently. I'm taking applications. And the Supreme Court pretty much took and validated the case that I wanted to argue. And I'm all... I'm very happy about it all. Don't get me wrong. But, um... (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it, it, it didn't suck the wind out of my sails, but it, you know, it's just like, well, now what do I do? Well, you move to Seattle and live the good life, which is what I did. So yeah, you, you finished law school, you, uh, you moved to Seattle. I mean, the, the big battles you wanted to fight are, they're over. They're resolved. I guess, I guess kind of what I'm asking is, uh, do you think that's, uh, do you think that's permanent? No. Do you think, okay. And well. this, I mean, this goes to that discussion about what is going to be the thing in 30 or 40 years that we don't understand or our peers don't understand. And that goes to why I want to work for an organization like the EFF or the ECA or whatever it happens to be at the time and try to keep First Amendment rights um, you know, constitutional rights available to new forms of expression, whatever they look like, and to keep people from decrying them as the next thing that's going to destroy our children. Because, I mean, we had comics, we had, we had movies, and then we had TV and comics, and then, well, movies again, and then video games. I mean, like, it just rolls through whatever the relevant new media is at the time, and there's going to be something that's next. I'll always have something to fight for. It's just right now, it's in a lull. Last year, the EMP had a really amazing exhibit. It was very small, and it didn't last very long. But last spring, they had it's like the history of video gaming or something, and it was in a tiny little room where they never have anything in it. Um, but they just wedged a bunch of video game memorabilia in there. And it, they weren't necessarily working, but you could go through the room and look at you know, artifacts, quote-unquote artifacts from gaming, and they would show the console. There'd be an actual console there plugged into a TV, and the TV was just playing video of the console. The, I, you couldn't play the consoles. I just walked through and looked at the kids, and I'm talking like 5, 8, 12, 15 you know, kids of all ages are going through and looking at these games and going, whoa, cool! Oh, man, that's what video games were like? Whoa, that's weird! And I was like, I was there just smiling, right? And they were impressed by it, right? That was the cool thing. These kids had an appreciation for the history of video gaming. I was walking around the room, really drawing, you know, taking the whole thing in, and I stopped because there was some art from the original Warcraft. That's what caught my eye originally. I was like, oh, there's some Warcraft art. I believe it's Warcraft art. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, oh, I can identify, blah, blah, blah. And not that far away from that art was a cloth map under glass. Like it was a museum. And you weren't allowed to touch the items because, you know, they were artifacts. And this is a 20-year-old cloth map from, I don't, I, I don't know which Ultima game. It was probably Ultima 4 or Ultima 5. I can't remember off the top of my head. It said it on the plaque, but I don't remember. Um, and I stopped and I looked at it. And I could stand there and read all the runes, you know, still to this day. I can still read all the city names on the map. And I look at it, and I'm not looking at a video game cloth map. I'm looking at a map of a home away from home and all my memories tied to that land, Britannia. And I'm surrounded by all these kids freaking out about how 
video games are cool. Looking at a piece of my own past, you know, and it you know, almost brings tears to your eyes because video games just aren't cool. I mean, they're a part of your life. I was miserable in Minnesota, and then I'm all of this happened, and I moved to Seattle, and the culture in Seattle's amazing, and the weather in Seattle's amazing, and my friends in Seattle are amazing, and I met my husband, and we got married, and when you're little, you think, well, what's life going to be like when you're an adult? And it's the kind of life you want to grow into. If it were not for video games, I wouldn't be here. I would not be in Seattle. I would not be an attorney would have not gone to law school, I'd still be in Minnesota. A paralegal and probably pretty miserable. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Lord British. <laughs> thanks, Lord British. You're the best. Player Accounts is produced by me, Spencer Tordoff. I'd like to thank Susie Stewart for appearing on the show today. You can find her on Twitter, at Susie Stewart. We are on iTunes. Just search Player Accounts on iTunes. You should see us uh, pop right up. And to listen to all of our episodes, and if you want to submit an idea for a story or music or what have you, the address is playeraccounts.net. Thanks for listening. <laughs>